0: Huh. What? Oh my goodness. Wow.
1: Oh my gosh. What is happening? Oh my god. Radio Lab. Whoa. Adventures on the
2: edge of what we think we know.
1: welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for bio and health at A16Z. Today we have an exciting episode on regulation and telehealth providers, originally a fireside chat that we wanted to share with you all. The chat is hosted by Daisy Wolf, a partner for A16Z Bio and Health and features Sarah Thomas, General Counsel at Same Day Health, a testing healthcare and wellness provider. Sarah is also an advisor at Favor, previously known as the Pill Club, where she was formerly the General Counsel. Prior to that, she served as Deputy General Counsel and a founding member of the legal department at Smile Direct Club. In this episode, Daisy and Sarah discuss the regulatory aspect of telehealth post-pandemic, provider licensure, and how early stage companies can think about partnering with counsel, as well as coalitions, to comply with regulation and effect change. I think the first topic
0: that makes sense to cover is the cross-state practice of medicine. Can you explain what happened during COVID and where we are today? Yeah, the
2: pandemic gave us all an opportunity to reevaluate the healthcare landscape and recognize different opportunities to meet the needs of our communities. I I think COVID made it clear how much we have true healthcare heroes in this world and what they mean to all of our ability to function and live on a daily basis. And the states, in turn, did the right thing. They expanded licensure. Um, Most of those expansions actually came as part of the governor's orders, and then the various licensing bodies were stuck with figuring out how to implement those, which led to a patchwork of different scenarios, even sometimes within a same state, where a nursing board would expand license to practice for a nurse practitioner, but the pharmacy board wouldn't recognize the right to prescribe leaving a lot of messiness and a lot of companies and individual practitioners fighting those things. That said, across the board, it took down state barriers and made telehealth more freely available across the board and opened up providers, especially in states that had had limited access previously. Move forward to today, our waivers are basically gone. And in most instances, we're back to where we were previously. The licensing boards have cracked back down. Their lobbies are very much in play again, as we know that they like to be, and they are very protectionist of their little victims. All of that being said, though, there's movement. And you can see the rumblings across the board of where as a you know, country and in certain states, there's desperately the need to expand this
0: sort of telehealth practice. But it's going to take quite a bit of work to get there. And moving forward, do you, you know, what do you think is going to happen? Do we have any shot of getting national licensure? No, <laughs> bluntly, no. Um,
2: the, those state boards are far too entrenched. Those individual boards have too much authority and too much power, and they're never going to give it up unless they have to. And right now, they don't have to.
0: There have been some high profile controversies in telemedicine this year. Um, it's reported cerebrals being investigated by DOJ for possible violations of the Controlled Substance Act. It's also reported and done is being investigated for the by the DEA for their prescribing of controlled substances. And obviously a lot of retail pharmacies have kind of cracked down and excused to work with these companies. Um, also, the status of the pause of the in person consultation requirement for controlled substances required in the Ryan Heat Act is in flux. But I'm wondering, it's from a broader perspective. Will these controversies cause a tightening of regulation for telehealth providers? I actually don't think it will. I think in the long run, there still will
2: continue to be an expansion on the regulations. There is currently pending the Connect for Health Act in Congress. It was entered in 2021. It's still being plugged. The ATA is a big sponsor of it, American Telehealth Association. And there is this goal and desire to expand um, telehealth access to care. And that act goes across almost every single modality, including controlled substances. But we're also seeing individual states take their own actions and expansions Florida recently expanded um, telehealth prescribing for controlled substances. The view is telehealth is here to stay, and people have recognized that there is the opportunity to expand care and to provide really good high-quality care via telehealth. And for patients who have access to care issues, it offers them a different opportunity than they might have available to them. Underlining that, on the flip side still is the issue of good internet access. And many of the people who have access to care issues also do not have equivalent good internet access and high-speed internet to access the care as well. So that's the other piece of this expansion
0: that many are looking at and trying to figure out how they support that. One trend we've seen recently is independent practice for nurse practitioners. Can you speak to what you're seeing on an independent practice for NP, front? This was starting pre-pandemic,
2: where primary care providers are unlimited. Unfortunately, medical school bills are large and going into primary care doesn't pay them the same way as going into some sort of specialty. Um, So we have fewer and fewer physicians going into primary care and it's leaving a significant deficit. And nurse practitioners are stepping in to fill that deficit, same with uh, PAs. And you know, the next step is, well, how much oversight do they require? There's currently 24 states that permit independent practice of nurse practitioners. Ideally, California is joining that as number 25 um, on January 1. California Board of Nursing still hasn't published the rules necessary to, be, to achieve independent practice. And we're at the end of September. And that is a large part because the medical lobby is against it. The California medical board is trying to stop it. So we, once again, have this conflict between the need for patients' access to care and the established medicine being afraid that they're going to lose their hold on things. Right now, for example, in California, a physician can only supervise a maximum of four NPs at a time. So you've also then further limited the ability to have any sort of practice by these practitioners because the physicians can't oversee as many as well. So we're headed the right direction. I think the legislatures understand the need to expand practice. But again, the lobbies are so strong that they're causing these problems. Great example of this is actually in Mississippi, where NPs have no independent practice. And to supervise an NP in Mississippi, the provider themselves have to practice in the state 80 hours a month. Wow. So you've made it almost impossible. And no one's looking to change that or wants to change that because, again, it's just so entrenched. We need it as a country. And at a certain point, depending on how things go, if the nurse lobby gets big enough, they will override the medical lobby. They just haven't gotten big enough and well bundled enough at this point to make that change.
0: One thing that you were super helpful in educating me on is inducements and how that plays into the calculus of whether a company should accept insurance or should potentially stay in the cash pay world. Do you mind just educating us all on, on how to think about those trade-offs? Absolutely.
2: So for those who are not familiar, or if you're in a cash pay only space, um, you don't have to worry about inducements. It's great. Lucky you. Um, for the rest of us that take insurance and most importantly, also take government payer plans, um, of any sort, inducements are front and center in what we do every day. Short answer on inducements, the the CMS rules are $75 a year, maximum of $15 at any one time. And those are the very, very, very upper limits. When you get close to any of those limits, you have a regulator who's looking over your shoulder going, what are you doing? And so what is an inducement? An inducement is a reason why a patient would pick you Giving them something of value over another plan that might pay for that exact same service. So at Faber, are we have little goodies that went out in all of our packages every single time. And those all add up. They count with inducements. Um, and so evaluating anything you give to a patient to incentivize them to walk through your door versus somebody else's, that all plays into inducements. That said. You have a very different patient population available to you if you are willing to accept insurance and government payer plans. And it's really a matter of what population are you trying to serve and how are you looking to provide your services? If you are looking to provide access to care, and that is a fundamental tenant of what you do, I don't think you get away with being cash pay only, unfortunately. And then you are somewhat hands tied. They have not changed the inducement rules for inflation, even before the last few years, um, those numbers have stayed very stagnant. I haven't seen any indications that they're going up anytime soon either. And so, you know, inducements are very much going to be something where if you want to give something a value away, make sure you vet it and then make sure you track it. So those numbers I gave are in a rolling 12-month period. So this date looking 12 months back and then tomorrow looking 12 months back and it keeps going along. And so while things will fall off, it takes a while for something to fall off. So if you do a big something to get people through the door, it takes a little while to be able to spend that money.
0: I was gonna say one one place I've seen this come up is in cross-selling to other business lines of your company. So let's say you offer primary care services and you want to add, you know, get people to also buy your nutrition services. If you give them a $15 discount on that first visit, like that's your cap of inducement. And This is a large reason that a lot of kind of the telepharmacy companies like the Rowan Hymns of the world have not taken insurance coverage. Very much so,
2: because they want to be able to incentivize. They want to be able to share and to, you know, give other buy-ins. The other piece here is um has to do, I think, with usual customary billing. So for those who are on that side of things, whatever you charge as a cash price then becomes your cap. And what you're going to get reimbursed for potentially. And so the other reason why they stay cash only, because if you have, you can make your cash price as low as you want, but if you need to then get, you know, essentially as a lock leader get somebody in the door for something else, but if you then cap your insurance reimbursement at that cash price, you can cause other problems. There's a lot of, negatives, unfortunately, to taking insurance in terms of what you can and can't do, but obviously it opens up your population pool significantly, and it just it puts you in more potential regulatory hot water, which is why you have to keep your legal and compliance team
0: very, very close. We would love to hear how early stage pre-revenue Dell health companies are thinking about building out compliance programs, both from a timing and a cost perspective. Do you have any advice you can kind of offer to those who are, you know, gradually becoming more mature and and thinking about compliance more and more? My first ask is start thinking about it early and often,
2: especially in startups, move fast and break things. I, how often do we say that? Like over and over and over again. The problem is the healthcare system doesn't break very well. It tends to turn around and break you. That's normally what happens. That's what's happening to Cerebral right now is they thought that they could just go and that the establishment would follow. And unfortunately, the establishment is not gonna follow here. They're not interested in that. And so there are lots of opportunities to play in the gray and to have fun um, and to do things in a different way, but it really takes understanding the nuances. So along those lines, my top recommendation is to build a partnership with an outside council who you know, who you trust, and who understands what you're trying to achieve as a business. And that unfortunately takes a little bit of time. It's going to cost something to get somebody up to speed and have them really be a partner with you. But if you have the right outside counsel, you have a partner who could help you navigate these really unique issues from the get-go versus what I tell my legal and compliance team all the time is the question that the business is asking is half the time not the right question and you need to dig deeper. If you do a flyby with your outside legal team and give them this amount of information, they can only give you an answer that's as good as the information that they're functioning under. And so building that relationship and being really transparent with outside counsel, and again, the right one, will allow you to be successful and help them to build a partnership path with you to achieve the best end results and to keep you out of these big investigations and other things. Because normally there is a way to find the yes it's just a matter of understanding the end result. What are you trying to achieve? Don't tell me how you want to get there. Tell me what your end goal is, and then I will help you build the path in a partnership. And I think that's really the key is coming to somebody with your solution or your end and then helping working collaboratively to build the back end. So you don't need somebody in-house. You don't have to have that, but having the right person outside to build that path and understand what the business is trying to get to makes all the difference in the world. Can
0: you speak a little bit to asynchronous telemedicine? I think you know one of the first iterations we saw of this were like the row and hymns of world of the world that we're just reviewing forms, and now we're seeing basically everyone and their mother has some reason to use asynchronous telemedicine, whether it's texting with patients and being able to provide more, um, you know, twenty four seven care. Can you speak to you know what that looks like from a legal perspective and from a payer perspective? Yeah, so asynchronous
2: does feel like the next frontier. It feels like the way that we can see patients where they are as, you know, for many of us who treat um, Gen Z patients, they don't want an in-person face-to-face interaction. They want a text message. They That's all they're willing to do. And they want to do it on their own time in their own way from their couch and not when you schedule an appointment. So the desire for care is changing. The law has not exactly caught up Um, And payers most definitely have not caught up. So basically every single state that allows for any sort of asynchronous care, the care is a permitted via store and forward technology, but a questionnaire in and of itself is insufficient to establish a provider-patient relationship. So there has to be another step. What else, what other back and forth, something else needs to constitute that visit more than just a patient filling out a form. That's kind of the first piece. There are still states that don't permit any real asynchronous care, Arizona being top of the list. Arizona basically requires almost everything to be face-to-face interactions, real time, um, in order to be a viable patient visit of any sort. The other piece is the, the billing codes are relatively limited and they pay almost nothing when you have them. So fundamentally, there is no billing code to establish a new patient asynchronously. You can't do it that way. You can have follow-up visits that are asynchronous, but you cannot initiate a patient and bill for it. No code exists under the AMA. And they've already put out their release for their 2023 codes, no change in 2023. Um, So that's the next piece is we're not seeing the medical establishment provide a way to bill for those to get follow-on. And then the codes that do exist As I said, they just don't pay much of anything. And by not paying much of anything, I mean in the like $10 to $15 range where you question whether or not it's even worth your time to submit the billing for that uh, visit, visit, end quotes. And so it depends on complexity. If you have a much more complex visit, you might get more, but it's relatively limited there as well.
0: I think that's a nice bridge to insurance coverage of telemedicine. I know some states have parity laws that say, you know, you have to cover telemedicine if you're covering it in person. Few states have payment parity laws, but I'm just curious what the landscape looks like as of today. Yeah, again,
2: and this is one of those places where the establishment has mostly dug in um, in a lot of ways. So 43 states plus D.C., have coverage parity laws so that the plan has to be agnostic to whether or not it's telehealth versus in-person, but there's no payment parity that goes along with that. So the plan has to cover a telehealth visit. It doesn't mean they're covering it at a point that we all want to bill for it and get reimbursed for it. It might be lower than you'd want, or could actually even cover your costs. And the other piece that's missing here is that you generally miss out on some of the facility fees and the other things that you might get in person because they also are so far, again, dug in on their belief that you don't. if you don't have the in-person location to maintain, well, you are not addressing the software and the other security provisions and other pieces necessary in order to support a telehealth visit. There's plenty of other non-physical location costs that are associated with that sort of care um, that the insurers so far have been relatively unwilling to pay on. So it's a frustrating position to be in um, and one where the best things that you can do is start again building those relationships with the payers. And I know we're gonna get to that in a little bit about what those mean in terms of our ability as new startups providing different modalities of care to expand our opportunities and to give something different in a way that
0: we can actually be successful. Yes, I think that brings us to payers. In your experience, who is easy to work with from a telehealth perspective? Who is hard? And do you have any tips for maintaining good relationships with payers from a compliance perspective? I think the blues are probably the hardest to navigate. The
2: blues are a little bit of a gobbledygook and a mess of trying to figure out Who is responsible where? And, um, you know, I've seen really interesting things from the Blues where, for example, it was a Blues plan in one state. The patient was located in another state. The provider that saw the patient was fully licensed in the state that the patient was located in appropriately, going back to our cross-state practice of telemedicine. But the Blues plan turned around and turned the provider into their licensing board because they weren't licensed in the home state of the plan. The plan didn't care, they didn't reach out, they didn't do any follow-up. There's no requirement that this provider ever be licensed in the home state of the plan. They should be agnostic to where the plan is. But the blues are so entrenched in their way of doing things and they just assumed that it must be wrong, they turned around and created a quagmire for this poor provider who had done nothing wrong in the process and now was being investigated by a state licensing board for no fault of their own. So they have built a network that's very hard to follow and function in. And for those on the pharmacy side, they are inconsistent about who their PBMs are as well. And they're changing around PBMs, which makes it even more complicated right now. So blue's the top of my list of the hardest ones to work with. I think Anthem is on the easier side within reason. Anthem wants to work with startups and has this idea of like new things to do. And then actually their compliance folks and their legal folks have created a long list of policies and procedures that uh, in many ways stymie the rest of the organization from doing new and innovative things. And so the rest of the organization might be inv- interested in creating a new billing code or doing something else along those lines that would be interesting and allow for a pilot. And then the other teams get back and say, no, we have a big policy that we're not going to make an exception to. And said so you can't do this new pilot over here. I think there's a little bit of push and pull there, but there's potentially the opportunities to pilot new things and to work with that if you can kind of find the right path into the right people.
0: I think your story of the provider working with the Blues plans is kind of all of our nightmare. Like none of us want our providers getting in trouble. I'm curious if you have any tips or tricks for avoiding situations like that. Having a great relationship with the plans.
2: Fundamentally, your market access team, if you have one, is where that lies. And so that ideally there's somebody at the plan who picks up the phone and calls you before anything goes sideways. Doesn't always exist. The plans all have SIU units that generally tend to function independently. And if something ends up in their craw, you may not get around it. But having that point of contact and having them know who who is on the other end of the line, who can make that difference is absolutely key. And and that goes both ways. It's, you know, it's being super responsive. You know, I've had matters where we need information from a plan and unrelated to something. We need to subpoena them for records. And I make sure that I let my market access team know that they pick up the phone and have that call so that when we send a subpoena over, I don't get a WTF response out of somebody. And so that relationship really needs to go both ways and needs to be very collaborative. But if it does, it can be hugely beneficial to both sides. You can pilot new things with plans. You can do really interesting
0: things if you build that relationship. The field is moving toward telehealth, asynchronous communications, and other ways to communicate with patients like AI, chatbots, and logic-based rules. What's your view on how regulators will view the newer forms of communication technology? Will regulators borrow a lot of the telemedicine chassis or will they develop new rules? being generous to regulators, they don't
2: aren't great at keeping up with technology and understanding how technology can necessarily be useful in providing and scaling services. I think there's a lot of opportunity there, and I think it's going to hit up against a huge regulatory roadblock because the regulators are not going to understand how it works. And if you have one or two cases go override because something's going to happen, these are imperfect sciences, they could become the you know the bad apple that spoils the bunch uh, essentially, and so this is where building those regulatory relationships, explaining to regulators how how you do things. When I joined Smile Direct Club, we were the first that had ever done that sort of care. That was really brand new. The idea of providing orthodontic care via telehealth literally blew everyone's minds. They didn't think it was possible, and we had 37 state board complaints filed against us and active at the time I joined the company. And we did a roadshow. We went and we sat down with the regulators and we explained to them how we did our business and how it worked and sat with the dental boards with their dentist side by side with our dentist and me. And we walked them through the process and every single complaint got closed without action, all 37 of them. So there's a way to build those partnerships in a post-COVID world, it's gonna be getting back on a plane and really being front and center in person with these people again and allowing them to see that A, you care. You really are trying to provide the best quality of patient care and B, that you've taken these things into account and you've crossed your T's, you've dotted your I's and you're following through in a verifiable process. But it's going to go back to that relationship building that we kind of got away from during COVID.
0: We couldn't think of a better person um, to ask our questions to than Sarah Thomas. Thank you so much, Sarah. My
1: pleasure. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hexa. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying Bioweed's World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.